Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Megan Condis and her talking about her new book, Gaming Masculinity. Trolls, Fake Geeks, and the Gendered Battle for Online Culture. Professor, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well also. Uh, I just wanted to start out by going a little bit into your background in terms of your academic career, but also what led you to write about masculinity and gaming? Uh, So in terms of my academic career, uh, right now I teach at Texas Tech University in communication studies. And uh, before that, I was at Stephen F. Austin State University in the English department, and I studied at the University of Illinois in the English department. So uh, I've got kind of a strange trajectory bouncing between departments and colleges. And partly that's because my project is kind of resting at the space that lives in between Uh, like literature or writing studies and communication studies. And I'm lucky because I've had mentors who have been okay with me doing that kind of interdisciplinary, uh, bouncing back and forth between departments. In terms of the book, uh, how I came to be interested in gaming and masculinity, uh, I've been a gamer, uh, which that term is fraught, I guess, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But uh, I've thought of myself as a gamer uh, since I was very young. Uh, my dad, when I was growing up, was the manager of a pizza parlor that had arcade machines in the lobby. And so I would play out there and we had a Nintendo Entertainment System when I was young. And I remember being a, a young girl in that culture, I always felt uh, a duty, I guess, to perform a sort of tomboyishness 
in order to get along. Um, and I think what, what got me really interested when I was an undergrad and I was first learning about like gender studies, women's studies, was this idea that, you know, as whatever kind of body you have or whatever kind of identity you have, you can kind of adopt masculine or feminine traits when you enter into particular spaces or you, or maybe I should say you are expected to do that. And so I got really interested in this idea that uh, online gaming in particular was restrictive in the sense that it kind of required people to adopt a more masculine presentation, whether they were men or whether they were women, uh, when they're entering into these gaming spaces, but then also, you know, okay, so that's a restriction on who is allowed to play, who is allowed to be a gamer, but it also might be a place of conflict where maybe uh, new kinds of alliances or new kinds of uh, personal presentations or identities can be formed. Yeah, and I, I also want to say part of the reason why I initially picked up your book um, at that popular culture conference is because I also enjoy gaming, and I thought this was a really uh, interesting look into this culture. And part of, in terms of recent uh, events, part of that culture and how you begin your book and end your book, actually, uh, is with the uh, Gamergate scandal, right? So for those that aren't familiar with that, could you just go over what was that and why was that important to understand why uh, online gaming culture is gendered? Yeah. Oh, okay, that's a hard one. Okay, so <laughs> it's hard to describe because there's so many different narratives that are floating around out there about it. Um, and that's kind of where it gains its power. Uh, so Gamergate started in a very like small venue. It was a game developer named Zoe Quinn, and she had uh, a jilted ex-boyfriend who was real mad about their breakup and wrote this post about how she's, she's real mean and bad. And he circulated around in these... Uh, games forums and on Reddit and places like this. And as the post sort of became viral and got picked up and read in different places, it got kind of taken up as an excuse to uh, interrogate this female game developer's life and, and harass her and bother her and dox her and send her threats on Twitter and, you know, every all the horrible trollish behavior that we know and love on the internet, right? Um, and as this movement uh, sort of gained momentum, there were people in the gaming community that saw that this was a group of people who felt angry and felt kind of betrayed by women in general and especially by women in gaming spaces, kind of felt like women were were invading their kind of safe spaces. Uh, and so these people directed that energy and said, uh, and you know, this sounds very conspiracy theory-like, I guess, but you can find there are 
people who've documented this online where you can go into their, uh, they call them raid channels, where people would like plan this out and say, here's the next person we're going to harass online because she's a game developer or a feminist game critic and, and we don't like her. Um, but they, there are these people within that group who, who said, okay, we're going to kind of uh, harness this energy and this anger and we're going to try to direct it at women and people of color and queer people in gaming culture. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in my book is that I think that movement uh, of Gamergate, I don't want to say this, it was both kind of a precursor to the alt-right in general, or maybe like an arm of the alt-right as it exists online. Uh, and also it was a kind of a recruiting ground that a lot of anti-feminists and white supremacists, excuse me, white supremacists uh, would kind of go into that group or go into that movement in an attempt to uh, find people who were sort of primed or ready to hear uh, messages about exclusion and about uh, kind of right-wing right reactionary politics. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, Gamergate is something that shows us that, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, I like video games and I want to read a book about video games and it's fun. And, and it is fun and I love video games. But I also think we have this tendency, particularly in academia, to say like, oh, video games are just like frivolous. Maybe they're not really art. Maybe uh, they're just a province of like juvenile adolescence, but it actually has become uh, kind of an important cultural touchstone to a lot of people. And in fact, it's become uh, a ground where like the culture war is being contested. So you have conservatives who are arguing for like preserving the the masculine core of gaming and we don't want to let gaming become overly feminized or softened. And then you have people who are saying, let's make games more diverse. Let's use games to explore gender identity and to explore race and to explore disability and all these different kind of interesting intersections. So just like literature or just like film, it's become a space where people act out their identities and where people contest their identities. Yeah, and I think a really important takeaway, uh, not just from the beginning of your book, but the whole book is that, and we're going to get into this a little bit later with the, your third chapter, but just this idea that um, people wanted to believe that we could all leave prejudice at the door when entering gaming culture, but you really find that it's actually not the case. We bring that directly into the gaming culture. Right. Um, but before we get into that, I do want to, because you brought up the fact that the term gamer is very fraught. And I thought that it was an interesting uh, work that you do sort of defining terms. So what? who are gamers and why are gamers so invested in masculinity in this sort of online culture? <laughs> Uh, okay, so who are gamers? Um, I, I, I ask this question uh, when I teach classes about digital culture. I'll, I'll say, how many, how many of you students in this room kind of think of yourself as a gamer? And, you know, maybe uh, 
like if it maybe a quarter of the class will raise their hand and you know that's actually kind of a lot uh because i'm sure a lot of them signed up because they saw like digital culture in the name of the class or if i'm giving a talk somewhere i'll ask and then it'll just be like a smattering of people in the room right and then i'll say okay well how many of you have ever played a digital game like on your phone on a console on the computer and it's everybody, right? Everybody has played Candy Crush or Words with Friends or Solitaire on their PC or, or whatever it might be. So that right there, I think, is the crux of where what is a gamer uh, is, is being contested. Because uh, so back when I was a kid uh, in the 90s, video games were specifically something that were marketed to boys as a boy's toy. Uh, video games kind of lived in the toy aisle. And, you know, t- if you go to the toy aisle in the store, you know, you have the pink one with the Barbies and the stuff for girls. And you have the boys' toys aisle with the action figures. And that's where the video games lived. And that's what the marketing campaigns said was that uh, video games are something that, that boys will enjoy. And so... For a long time in video game culture, to be a gamer, like to have access to video games, was to be kind of uh, interpolated <laughs> into uh, a certain kind of role as a consumer. Like you're a boy, you like sh- to shoot things, and you like to uh, play with technology, and it was sort of something that was baked into the sales pitch for these machines. And then uh, as, you know, computers become more and more ubiquitous and as smartphones become more and more ubiquitous, you start to get different kinds of people playing electronic games. Um, Think about when the Nintendo Wii first came out and they were marketing it as a game system for the family. You would see commercials with like brothers and sisters playing together or moms and dads playing a game with their kids. And a lot of folks who grew up in the nineties gaming culture kind of being told that video games are a thing that you do with your bros. And it's something that's uh, for boys. Like it's a a thing that boys can do. uh, They can kind of retreat into the den and play this video game and kind of enact these, you know, boyish fantasies, G.I. Joe style fantasies. And so I think a lot of them felt a little bit betrayed by the idea that, you know, now we have these games and these systems that are being marketed to different kinds of people. And maybe that means that this hobby or this thing that we've kind of organized our identity around uh, isn't exclusively masculine or doesn't confer any kind of uh, special, how do you want to say, any kind of like uh, special energy. Uh, that that sounds weird. That sounds like something Donald Trump would say in a tweet, right? Like some, <laughs> some, <laughs> some dragon energy or something. Or who said that? Did, was that Kanye said that about Donald Trump? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was just this idea that folks who had grown up gaming had been told, you know, this is like a niche hobby. This is something that only like a particular kind of boy will enjoy, like a kind of nerdy boy who's into other nerdy things, science fiction, comics, stuff like that. And then as the hobby started to diffuse into the rest of culture, that 
identity of who gets to call themselves a gamer uh, started to be questioned. And I think what, what we're seeing now is, you know, I, I always, I always say, if you enjoy film, you're not like a movier, right? Like you don't, <laughs> you don't build your identity around it, but in gaming culture, that participation in this particular hobby is sort of like a pillar around which people build their identity. And so when new kinds of people or new kinds of games enter into that arena, it's not just, oh, maybe someone else would enjoy this. It's, uh, oh, you're presenting this to me and now I don't know what to do with it because I've kind of built my understanding of myself around my interactions with this community and with this technology. And so what do I do with it? And I think the anxiety that gets caused by that kind of questioning is something that led to Gamergate being so popular. It was like, Oh, I have this anxiety. I I don't know how to feel about, these new games that are coming out and about the fact that I can enter into a GameStop now and I see different kinds of people and what does that say about me? And, you know, you take that anxiety in the same way that politicians have taken that kind of anxiety that's been floating around in the United States and you mold it into action, I guess. And and unfortunately in the case of online culture, it was uh, kind of a toxic set of actions. Right. And part of what you argue in the book is that anxiety leads to this sort of like meta game of masculine policing. So like what what is that? And how how do they those that engage in this meta game, how do they think that they would win? Well, okay, so I, in, the, in the book, I posit that trolling is itself a game, that it's a game that revolves around how people do or do not demonstrate emotions. So trolling means saying provocative things, often things that are themselves gendered or sexualized, like calling people... Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to use the words that they use, I guess, but, you know, calling people gay in a negative way or, you know, calling people, uh, you know, saying that they're sissies or pussies or whatever. Um, it, you know, if you're into gaming, you know that that's like the most mildest <laughs> <laughs> right. way to phrase it. But, you know, OK, so you can picture it. I'm sure you don't need to hear it on this podcast. But uh the idea is you say these provocative things and you push, 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 push against this person. And the game comes in where if you can get the other person to react with emotion to say, you know, stop it or you're, you're hurting me or even just with just anger, like screw you or whatever, then you've won that skirmish in the game, right? Like you've demonstrated that you could kind of bait the other person into losing self-control. And that in itself, you know, you would think that shouldn't be a gendered game, right? Because anyone can 
have emotions or can lose control of their emotions. But of course, you know, in our culture, being emotional is something that's read as feminine and being kind of rational and calm and objective is something that's read as masculine. So in gaming culture, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you could be, uh, you know, there are plenty of female trolls out there. There are plenty of men who succumb to trolling and, and react and, and have an emotional reaction. But the game is being played around who can kind of seize the position of the masculine objective person first. So it's kind of like king of the hill, right? Like you're sort of racing to get to this position of authority and you, you give up your authority when you have an emotional reaction. And so you can win an individual skirmish in that game, but the game never ends. It's, it's you know, in, when you're playing King of the Hill, it's not like the first kid who gets to the top of the hill just wins and then everyone goes home. It's, then you fight and you scrap and you claw that person down and pull yourself up to the top and then you get pulled down. It's like kind of a never-ending process, a never-ending uh, struggle. And, you know, that's maybe where some of the anxiety comes in, is you're never safe. Like, you've never, okay, I've proven it now. I've proven that I'm rational and, and controlled and that I don't have emotional outbursts. And now I'm done and I'm in, right? Like, that never happens. You're always vulnerable to possibly being put in the sort of feminized, overly emotional position if you aren't careful and if you aren't vigilant. And so a lot of people, I think, in gaming culture will sort of preemptively adopt a trolling, toxic persona because they kind of, it's like, that's their armor, right? Is if I can kind of adopt that aloof, I don't care, you know, nothing matters, nihilistic persona when I'm online, then that's going to protect my position in this game and maybe prevent people from coming at me or seeing me as a target to be trolled or to, or to be, uh, how do you say, harassed or, or whatever it might be. So it's, you know, it's like constantly having to reassert, you know, no, I, you know, I, I have the right, personality characteristics that have the right persona to fit into this group and you're never necessarily fully accepted into the group you always have to continually keep proving yourself and keep proving yourself and even perhaps escalate your proving so you know maybe one day i could just within my group of friends i could troll someone that I know and that would be enough. And then maybe the next day, now I have to troll a stranger that I meet online. And then maybe the next day, now I'm gonna get on Twitter and I'm gonna join this hashtag Gamergate and I'm gonna publicly go after people. And it's it's like, you gotta keep one-upping people and keep uh, pushing and pushing in this game of trolling in order to feel secure in this community. Right. And when you're talking, when you have your chapter on trolling and you're talking about uh, trolling as this sort of like gender discursive act, right. You, you link to what is another one of my favorite books, 
um, CJ Pascal's uh, ethnography of sort of high school masculinity mm-hmm. um, called Dude, You're a Fag. And you link, uh, you link sort of this discourse of trolling to uh, she finds sort of she calls it fag talk and compulsive heterosexuality. And you sort of say that that also maps onto this like gaming culture. So I, I wondered if you wanted to speak to that for a little bit, because I thought that was an interesting connection. Yeah. So compulsory heterosexuality is like, you know, it's, it's sort of similar. It's like you constantly have to brag about how many chicks you banged or whatever. Like you can't just be straight and have that be accepted. You have to sort of continually find ways to assert your straightness. Um, And one of the things I think is really interesting in that book is that um, they talk about how this is something that doesn't necessarily happen when women are present. It's something that happens between men when they're by themselves. So when you go online, I think there's this sense that you, you know, everyone, you don't have access to people's bodies. And so that sort of compulsory, I need to constantly be performing as though I'm in a group of bros. It's kind of on all the time because you can never be certain if you're surrounded by a bunch of guys and that this is supposed to be, you know, bag talk time where we bash on things that are perceived as queer so that we can assert that we aren't queer. Like that could be all the time. Um, And in fact, uh, it used to be that more than likely if you were on the internet, you were surrounded by guys like, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, the internet was a very masculine place. And, you know, now of course the gender gap has closed and, you know, men and women are online in equal proportions. But I think when the sort of norms of etiquette of being online were first being formed, there was this idea that you're you're always kind of in a group of guys. And in some ways, maybe that's a little bit safe because you can talk about guy stuff. But in some ways, maybe it's less safe because it means that, you know, you have to perform this kind of particular kind of masculinity all the time. And there's no, there's no space for vulnerability because if you're vulnerable and you're in one of these spaces, then maybe you're losing ground in your ability to, to project your own identity. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, you sort of start the book off with going over trolling and then your second chapter is about memes, right? As another sort of critical part of this gender discourse around gaming culture. So for those that aren't familiar with memes, what are memes? And then what memes are sort of most popular, most used in this discourse and what are, what are they doing? Okay, so memes are... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two definitions, I guess. So the first definition would be like the official definition. And that is a meme is any little piece of information or culture that easily kind of spreads and transmits from person to person. So like 
of that song that gets stuck in your head after you watch a commercial is a mean, uh, you know, popular movie quotes that you exchange with your friends are memes, you know, any, any little cultural bit that kind of sticks in people's heads. Uh, and then online, a meme is a format that is easily repeatable, but also alterable. So think like, uh, you know, an image of a picture of, you know, uh, the, the dog who's sitting at the kitchen table and his house is on fire and he's got a little word bubble and it says everything is fine, right? Like, <laughs> so, you know, odds are if you have been on social media, you've seen that a time or two, but it's also, so, so in that way it sticks in people's minds and it transmits and people share it, but also you can alter it. So you can change the words in a little word bubble if you're clever or you have Photoshop or whatever, and you can, make it so that the dog is talking about something in particular, or you can make him say something different. So it, you're kind of riffing off of the existing sticky piece of culture that everyone has already seen and making it your own. Well, at the same time showing I'm familiar with the stuff you're familiar with. I've seen this image that you've also seen. So it's kind of like an, an in joke, right? Like when you're in a group and you, uh, you all kind of, reference the same things and know the same cultural touchstones uh memes are a way of kind of showing that you have that like in-group knowledge because you know we've all we're all circulating the same images around but then you're also kind of putting your own spin on it and saying like i'm i'm also a unique individual because i can take this thing that we all share and i can put a little tweak on it to make it to make it my own um so memes are really important in online culture because they often in addition to containing just references to popular text like this is a meme that has zelda in it or whatever or this is a meme about mario like so you can show that kind of in-group uh participation but they can also kind of demonstrate the overall i guess like philosophy or ideology of a group and you say like what are you said like what are the what are like the popular memes that's really hard to say and that's the thing that really sucks about writing a book about online culture is like the second that you've written things down then you go online the next morning and now oh that means over now it's like this other meme so (laughs) so i i don't know if it's useful to say like and the meme where uh, it's idiot nerd girl, the girl who has nerd written on her hand, and the text will say something that's like really wrong about gaming culture, like to show that girls don't know anything about games. Like that was real. That's something I write about in the book because it was really big when I was writing, and you don't see it around as much anymore. Now there are different memes that are circulating, and there are different, you know, catchphrases. And it's interesting. Um, the project I'm working on right now is looking at how some of these memes kind of jump communities. So one thing I think is really interesting is, uh, so if you follow like alt-right politics, if you ever investigate like what's going on at Breitbart.com or whatever, I don't recommend it. It's not fun, but (laughs) if you do, you'll know that uh, one of the memes in that community is calling things they don't like, they'll say it's cucked. Like you are a cuck if you are 
a social justice warrior, if you're a progressive, if whatever. Like, you know, so that's a meme about failed masculinity and it circulates in that community. And I've started to see it cropping up in gaming spaces. So if you're in an online game and you get killed and you let your team down, then you might find yourself being called a cuck. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think that suddenly, you know, gaming culture independently kind of rediscovered this weird, <laughs> like what, you know, old timey word for being, uh, having a wife who commits adultery. Like that connection, it can't, to me, it, it can't just be coincidence. It means people, you know, are in these communities and they have overlapped and something about that meme from the alt-right and from the quote-unquote manosphere or the anti-feminist circles, something about that meme kind of found purchase in this culture and, and people in this culture identified with it like, oh, that's another word for an anxious masculinity that you would want to reject in order to show off that your own masculinity is sound. So it ended up kind of jumping jumping the barrier between cultures and, and finding purchase in this new place. So yeah, I, I think memes are really interesting. It's, they are kind of the way that you, the way that you communicate online. And it's really hard for academics because we, we like, you know, we like to codify our arguments and kind of put them down and, and preserve them. But the thing that makes memes effective is that they're always shifting and you always have to keep up and you, you can't stop in the same way that you're never allowed to just stop and be like, you know, I feel secure in my masculinity. I think I'm done proving myself. No, that's not allowed. So participating in meme culture means, you know, always having to scour the web for the new memes and knowing when a meme has become passe and, and, if you use it when it's out of fashion, then, oh, you've proven that you aren't invested enough in the meme culture. So now now you've lost some ground in, in this game that we're participating in. Yeah, and actually, as you say that, I've... I've done research into how uh, folks online, specifically on Reddit, use the word cuck. And and you're right. And the biggest takeaway is that it's ever changing the meaning that they're using it for within their community. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but within your discussion of memes, you do bring up the this sort of there are three or were three, depending on, you know, <laughs> when this is listened to. Uh archetypes of sort of female gamers right mm -hmm. and they're sort of like memification so like what what were those archetypes and what purpose do they serve within this gender discourse yeah okay so i argue in the book that as women started to become more visible in gaming culture um we needed, or gamers needed to come up with a way to explain that reality that would preserve their worldview that gaming is for guys. And so, okay, well, how do we, how do we kind of jive our observations? Like there's a girl in our GameStop with our belief that games are things that guys are interested in. Uh, and so one way to do that is to 
split the gaming community in half and say, well, girls play electronic games, but they don't play real video games. Uh, oftentimes this split is along the lines of casual versus hardcore. So like certain games, if they're casual or if they're accessible to people, like say The Sims or Candy Crush or something, then those become, well, those are video games and anyone can play those, but they're not like video games. They're not hardcore video games like a gamer would play. So that allows people to kind of say, well, I see women showing up and playing games, but I still can kind of believe in my secret heart that, you know, actual gamers are still all guys. That's that's one way that people deal with this. Another way that people deal with it is to say that that the girls who show up in these gaming spaces aren't actually here because they're interested in games, but are here because they have a boyfriend or a dad or a brother or something who got them into it and that they're there because they want to socialize. So they're like just kind of present in the background and maybe they play a supportive role. Like they cheer their boyfriend on while he is playing some first person shooter or maybe they even play along, but they play a supportive character, a character who heals other characters or helps other characters, but isn't necessarily like directly in the action or driving the action. So, you know, in that version, it's like, well, girls are here, but they're here doing girly things, right? Like they're, they're here to help. They're here to prop their partner up. And so that's okay. And then the third way that people deal with it is they say, well, maybe these women who uh, are playing hardcore games and are driving the action and participating fully, not just acting as support characters, like that's the ultimate, oh no, this is this is really threatening our, our worldview now, right? Uh, so there's a meme that posits that maybe those girls actually aren't into video games, but they're just trying to trick unwary men into thinking that they're interested in video games so that they'll seem cool so that maybe they can get something out of these guys. Um, so that would be like people who stream video game play on Twitch, uh, women who stream on Twitch and people will say, Oh, she just wants to get ad money and donations from guys. She's not really into video games. She's just like riding the bandwagon and trying to seem like a cool geek girl or sometimes you'll see like if a if a celebrity actress plays a gamer in a movie people will say like oh she's just pandering to the gaming audience like she doesn't really know anything about games she's just trying to like capitalize on gaming's popularity so you know those those three explanations like they're obviously not necessarily contradictory right but like none of them are complete but there's sort of three different tools people can reach for in order to deal with their cognitive dissonance when they see people entering into games, either as players or as developers or as critics, that they think, oh, like my worldview says that they don't belong here. These memes are sort of like common explanations that people can reach out and grab onto to reassure themselves and say, oh, actually, no, maybe it's fine. Maybe 
maybe gaming itself, we can still kind of preserve it as a masculine pastime. And we can explain these women who are here as aberrations, according to one of these three categories. Right. And before we uh, explore some of the later chapters of your book, I do want to take a break, pun intended, to talk about your game breaks in the <laughs> in the book, because I thought this was a really unique way not only to write, but also to sort of insert uh, gaming metaphors into your narrative about gaming, right? Mm-hmm. And so you take these various breaks and talk about um, either particular games or particular facets of games. Um, so I wanted to know, like, what propelled you to sort of use that sort of writing style? And in, in particular, I wanted to talk about your game break about Far Cry 3, because I thought that was a really uh, fascinating one. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, well, the reason I decided to do it this way is because one of the things that I posit in the book is that when you play a lot of video games, you start to see non-gaming interactions through that lens so like if you've ever been like moving and you're trying to pack all your stuff in a car trunk or something and you start seeing it almost like tetris you're like i can fit this in here right like so you get you you kind of get those gaming goggles i guess and as i was working on the book I, i would also be playing games for fun and i would start to see how some of these beliefs within gaming culture were showing up in video games and not in like a really obvious call outy way. So it's not like a game character would like look down the barrel of the camera and be like, games are for guys, but it would be like in these, <laughs> you know, it would be in these like um, kind of like understated ways where either the narrative of the game or the mechanics of the game or, or what I find most interesting is when both those kind of work together to espouse like a particular worldview or encourage a particular way of looking not just at games themselves as a hobby, but at kind of social systems of interaction. Uh, And so I I think Far Cry 3 is, is a really interesting example because the developers kind of explicitly said in interviews, you know, this game is supposed to be kind of a commentary on video games. So you've played lots of video games where you get dropped into a hostile environment and you have to find guns and fight your way out, right? Like that that happens all the time. But that this game is supposed to be sort of like a meta commentary on that and a reflection on, you know, well, what does those types of games have to say about people of color, about women? You know, what, what happens to those kind of, people who are on the periphery of that common game story. And I think Far Cry 3 really tried to interrogate that question, but in some ways it couldn't interrogate that question because in order to successfully be a game where you land in a hostile environment, in this case an island, and have to fight your way off in order to actually be that and to participate and be recognizable as that kind of game, it makes it very difficult to address what 
that people around you have to say or, or think. Like, in order in order to successfully be that kind of game, uh, the genre has sort of foreclosed the possibility of doing that kind of meta commentary. And so, I think it's an interesting attempt, but I also think it's a good case study in some of the ways that uh, these genres and these game mechanics and these narratives that have proven popular in terms of like AAA blockbuster game releases, um, they've been sort of constructed specifically to foreclose that kind of self-reflection. Right. And you kind of make the argument that when attempting that sort of satire or commentary, if the satire or commentary becomes indistinguishable from the actual thing it's commenting on, then it sort of becomes, <laughs> it becomes the thing it's trying to comment on. Right, right. And I, and I think that bridges nicely into um, how you're linking this book to sort of alt-right politics as well. Yeah, I mean, so that is something, you know, people will say, how do you tell the difference between an actual Nazi online versus someone who's just saying racist things and putting a swastika up as their profile picture to be edgy? Like, how do you tell the difference between those? Like, people really mean it or people who are just doing it ironically. And I would say there isn't one because intention doesn't necessarily matter, right? Like we can look at the outcomes of both of those people existing in a space and the outcome is gonna be the same in both cases that people of color are gonna feel alienated in the space, that uh, there's gonna be kind of a silencing effect that, uh, and also I guess, you know, it's going to make it more likely that people who don't agree with white supremacist ideals are going to excuse themselves from the space and the space will be kind of left only for the bigots and the people who are pretending to be bigots for fun. And I guess if you put it that way, like the people who are pretending to be bigots from fun, that's when it becomes very clear, right? Like, oh, well, of course there's not a, like, why would you think it's fun to pretend to be a bigot unless you were actually you're actually a bigot or maybe it doesn't matter what you actually are <laughs> you're you're out there running around um putting these beliefs out there into the world whether or not you believe them in your heart of hearts maybe doesn't matter as much as your actions and we saw that with like um like in charlottesville so you had the unite the right rally and people were, you know, gathering with their tiki torches and their, you know, we have the KKK meeting up with neo-Nazis, meeting up with alt-right folks. And uh, there were some cases of people kind of getting mixed up with the uh, anti-protests who were protesting the Unite the Right groups. And when they were met with that resistance, when they were called out as like, you know, how dare you march with these Nazis? Like, what's wrong with you? And they would they would be like, oh, well, I'm just here because I thought it would be funny. Like, I'm just here because I heard it was going to happen on Reddit or I heard it was going to happen on 4chan. And I thought like, oh, this is going to be hilarious. People are going to get so mad and it's going to be great. And it's like, well, 
you you brought yourself to a rally and you marched you physically with your body marched and held a sign or a torch and contributed to this rally like okay so what does that mean like what does it mean to say well i'm here participating ironically and no one would actually have known that unless you pulled me aside and talked to me because if you just watch a video of the rally or if you just you know live in the city and watch the rally walk by no one's gonna be able to tell the difference between you and the person next to you who actually is here because they are super into neo-nazism and they want a white ethnostate like yeah i don't know i think that that's really interesting this this idea that like you know is it possible or, or we have how this is how i want to say it i think what these instances de demonstrate is that you have to be really careful if you want to satirize some of these really intense awful racist and sexist beliefs because it's really easy for your satire to become an instance of what it is that you're trying to satirize if you aren't really careful about how you mark yourself and how you mark the text and how you you want to make sure that as much as possible you aren't accidentally just recreating that thing and then saying well but it's okay because i'm laughing at it well okay but unless the laughing at it is present in the text you run the risk of just being one more racist or sexist thing out there in the world Right. And I think you do a, a good job at like attacking that assumption. Right. And another assumption that is made in gaming culture, but also you, you argue successfully sort of permeates into our larger sort of political and social culture is this idea that um, certain things, and in this case, gaming are apolitical, right? They're, we're leaving our sort of identity and political beliefs at the door to enjoy this game or this culture. So you, you title the uh, chapter, No Homosexuals in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk about sort of the message boards along the game, The Older Public. Um, so what happened in, in that message board or the most famous post in that message board? And then what what does it have to do with this discourse of being like apolitical, but also that stance being linked to sort of like privilege, right? Yeah. Okay. First, I want to say, I who would have known, you know? So I wrote I wrote that chapter like three years ago. It was part of my dissertation, and you know now here we are with the the Star Wars sequels, the new trilogy, and you know go online and nerds are real mad about new star wars because there's women and people of color in it so you know that's weird like you know sometimes <laughs> sometimes you accidentally uh run ahead of schedule and and talk about something before you know and then you get lucky because when your book comes out now people are talking about star wars a lot but um so <laughs> so in the chapter what i'm talking about is there's this uh massively multiplayer online game called the old republic it's like world of warcraft but set in star wars basically and uh the folks who make that game decided you know we want to ensure like the star wars brand is a family friendly brand 
we want to curb toxicity in our culture. And so they said, you know what, we're going to make it so that any use of terms like gay or lesbian or queer on our forums gets automatically censored. And the logic was, you know, hey, we have this fag talk that's going on all the time, this compulsory heterosexuality, and we don't want people calling each other names in our forums. And so we're just going to make it so that you can't use those words, which I think is an impulse that, like, I think their heart was in the right place, but it's an impulse that assumes that everyone who's in those forums and using words like gay or lesbian like must be straight dudes who are using it in an abusive way. And so some uh, queer gamers popped up in the forums and said, hey, actually, you know, being gay isn't something bad that needs to be censored. And what if I want to come on to these forums and maybe I want to start a guild that's gay friendly, or maybe I want to role play a character in star Wars who is a lesbian or whatever it might be. And so we object to the idea of just outright blanket automatically censoring these words because that makes it seem like dirty or bad to identify as queer. And then this big fight broke out in the forums over this. So there were some folks who said, you know, we think that, words like gay and lesbian and queer are overly political. You know, we came to Star Wars because we wanted to be a Jedi or a bounty hunter, not because we wanted to argue about gay marriage or whatever. And this is actually, so when this took place uh, was kind of around the time that the Supreme Court was deciding about gay marriage. So like that was kind of on everybody's mind when they were and they were talking about this in the forums. So there's this idea that like, okay, so if you want to talk about your queer identity or gay politics, you know, you can do that, but you shouldn't do that here in Star Wars world because Star Wars world is supposed to just be fun and lighthearted. And we, we don't talk about politics in, in Star Wars world. Uh, and other folks said, you know, well, Look, look at Star Wars. Star Wars is about politics. Star Wars is about what political system is being imposed upon the galaxy. It's about, you know, a resistance to an empire. So to say, you know, oh, well, we don't want to talk about gays and lesbians and queerness because that doesn't fit within this world, this apolitical world, is basically just cherry picking what you call politics, right? Like some things you call uh, epic science fiction stories, like clashes between an empire and a resistance. And then some things you dismiss as politics. And what we need to do, I think is recognize that. And, you know, if you're into gender women studies, say it with me, everything is political, right? Like (laughs) we can ruin everything, but you know, but ruin isn't the right word because, you know, a lot of these people said, you know, yeah, I do come to Star Wars because I want to pretend to be a Jedi. But if I'm a gay man or if I'm a trans woman or whatever I happen to be, then that's who I want to be as a Jedi or as a bounty hunter or whatever it is. And so to say like, well, you can come 
play in our Star Wars sandbox, but make sure that you don't mention anything about who your partner is or who you love or, you know, all these different things. It's like, well, that does make my experience different and lesser than the experience of people who are straight, who can talk, like talk about my Jedi is in love with, you know, a whoever and they're they're gonna get in-game married or what like just that sort of overall pressure the idea that um you know certain ways of being are natural or normal and then other ways of being are you're just wanting to bring your politics into star wars like that was sort of the crux of the debate and what ended up happening was uh, the game company that runs the old Republic ended up deciding with, with queer folk and said, you know what? We want this game to be open and inclusive. And we think we stand to make more money if we broaden our, our audience and make our game welcoming to different kinds of people, then we stand to lose by having people who don't want to hear about queerness saying we're going to quit this game right um so it was sort of an interesting intersection between like queer politics and capitalism and uh you know a, a lucky confluence where uh people's right to expression kind of dovetailed nicely with this game company's desire to figure out what uh what groups they should cater to in order to make money. Yeah. And I think that in your last chapter, you sort of tie the discussion around gaming and online culture more explicitly to sort of contemporary politics. And we've been talking about that sort of throughout in, in our various uh, discussions here, but I, you make this interesting point uh, that I think, folks may have heard before, but I think in the context of your book, it sort of garners a more, uh, a deeper meaning, right? But you, you call uh, Donald Trump, like our first troll president, right? Mm -hmm. And, but not in the sense that we shouldn't take him seriously, but in the context that you've been talking about trolling. And I think that one of the really interesting connections here is going back to our discussion about satire and being able to not tell the difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you become the thing. I think that, you know, he and sort of uh, discourse around Donald Trump and his beliefs or non-beliefs, right. Sort of fall into that category, right. That even if he may not believe these things, even if he may say them just to, you know, own the libs. Quote yeah. Unquote. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to <But> trigger still, <laughs> you. Right. But because the difference is so indistinguishable at times, it's like, well, he, he is propagating those discourses, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, so, uh, you know, just recently, you know, he was giving a speech and talking about how, like, you know, the West will not be erased and, uh, you know, we don't want to be replaced by immigrants and like all this rhetoric. And, you know, if you, if you have explicitly avowedly white supremacist people saying he gets us, he heard us, he's, he's saying our stuff, 
Like, yeah, it, does it really matter if he's saying that stuff because he's a reality TV show host and he knows that controversy will get attention? Like, does it matter anymore if he means it or not? Um, I would argue that, <sighs> see, I don't know. I used to think, or maybe think is the wrong word. I used to hope that it was all just like a an instinctual recognition of what works, right? Like an understanding that when I'm when I make the opposition mad, that generates more energy in my base than when I make my base themselves happy. <laughs> right. So right. rather than positing proposals for what I want to do, I'm going to say things that make the other side just go, what? And then my side will be like excited about their madness. <laughs> um, but you know, the, as time goes on, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what's in Donald Trump's heart. Um, I think a lot of liberals wanted to believe that he was just like a huckster and maybe he had some good handlers who were like helping him to tap into the, the anger of what, you know, whatever people always say, like, you know, blue collar, middle America or whatever, like whatever. Like if you watch, you watch the news commentators right after the, the presidential election, everyone had their pet theory about like how this could have happened. Right. But, but I don't know. I, I'm increasingly thinking like, does it matter if Trump is the puppet of the alt-right or if he is like the actual mastermind of the alt-right? I don't think it matters. I think what matters is that we need to recognize that that rhetorical tactic of trying to bait people into an emotional reaction, we need to recognize that that's effective and try to figure out ways that we can counter that tactic and not kind of play into the hands of, you know, pointing and saying, look at this awful offensive thing that this person said, like to, to people on the left, we think like that's argument enough, right? Like be outraged with us at this horrificness and, what we need to learn is that, no, I, I think there's a lot of people who respond to not necessarily, well, I don't know, maybe I'm letting people off the hook. I was going to say, maybe people are just responding to the fact that you, that you owned the libs and that the content doesn't matter, but maybe that's letting people off the hook. Like, and maybe that's too hopeful to say, well, maybe America isn't really as racist as we think. Maybe they just, are being ironically racist. I, like that's that's the horrible thing, right? Is it's really easy to fall back into that debate of like, do they mean it? Do they not mean it? Are they redeemable? Are they deplorable? I don't know. I, I think maybe we just need to step out of that debate and instead start trying to figure out, okay, well, what what is an effective rhetorical set of memes or position that we can take that will counter that as opposed to just being upset that, that that works. <laughs> we need to figure out what works on our side. Yeah. And for, and for folks that, you know, maybe don't consider themselves gamers or into gaming culture, I think that parallel isn't, is a really sort of accessible way to understand 
trolling culture online, right? Because of those parallels that exist there. Um, I, I know I've taken up a lot of your time today, and I want to thank you again for joining the podcast. But I was, I was wondering if, you know, if you had readers pick up your book and you want them to have one takeaway that they take with them, what would that be? Oh, no, that's the hardest question. Um, <laughs> if I wanted them to have one takeaway, I guess I would say what I want people to take away is that games are worth taking seriously. Even if you, like, you know, well, one, like, <laughs> I was going to say, um, you, you know, you said if people aren't familiar with gaming culture, um, then this then this description is maybe accessible. Like, I, I'm, I'm not going to say, like, everyone should make games their hobby now. Like, if if you enjoy games, great. If you don't like them and you, they're too loud and obnoxious, then great. Like, I'm not saying, in you know, in order to be... A participant in culture you must be a gamer but i am saying that games are worth taking seriously because they are important to some people and because of maybe some people's politics is being formed by their participation in games culture in the same way that you know i don't know uh, all media whenever comes to the fore ends up shaping people's politics in some way shape or form right like so in academia when film studies first came around people were like movies are just breeding popcorn and entertaining the children like they're not important but then we realize oh they actually are important and they can convey these political and ideological messages the same with television and same with whatever and i just i think what i want people to take from the book is like games are worthy of that consideration too. And I focus on gendering games, but I would love to read like a Marxist critique of games. I would love to read, uh, like I know uh, Kishana Gray is a friend of mine and she's working on a project on uh, race and in particular what it's like to be a black woman on, or no, I think she's finished with that book already, the book about um, what it's like to be a black queer woman on Xbox Live. If, you, if you're a gamer, you know, you just shuddered when I said that, right? Like you, you <laughs> yes, can already yes, hear, yes, you can already yes, hear the chat. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I, I want to read from more people about the intersections between gaming and all these different identity categories. And I want to read more about this, this new form of communication, this new form of art. And I hope that I've contributed a little bit to that conversation. Question mark? I don't know. Well, <laughs> well, I I would argue you did, and uh, apart from your uh, friend's recent work, which sounds very fascinating, uh, if folks pick up your book, and I'm I'm sure they will love it, and they want to read more about you know this sort of uh, subfield within gender studies. Are there any books that you would recommend to those listeners? Yeah, um, I'm actually I'm going to plug my friend's actual title of her book because um, I I want to give her the full credit. So her name's Kishana Gray, and she wrote Race, Gender, and Deviance in Xbox Live: Theoretical Perspectives from the Virtual Margins. So she's great. Uh, I would also recommend Adrian Shaw's Gaming at the Edge. 
which is also about sexuality and gender and, uh, you know, in some ways about representation in games. So I would say my book is more about the people who are playing games and the interactions that they have online and in forums. And her book is more about, let's look at how women or queer people are like as characters in game stories are being represented. Um, so those two, I think, are really great. And then, I don't know, I, I think, I, this is maybe cheating as a response to your question, but I would say, if you can, maybe just ask friends who play games, like what games they might recommend to you. So, you know, just try to dip your toes into the waters. And, and if you have gamer friends, they'll tell you which ones to avoid because they're like the more toxic corners of gaming culture. But they might be able to recommend something you can play on your phone or something that you can play in your web browser that could be interesting to you. And one of the things we didn't talk about really is that there are, there are independent game makers who are creating spaces and stories for people other than straight white guys and they they just maybe aren't in the the triple a scene yet but but they're out there in the indie scene so you know even if if you don't think of yourself as a capital g gamer i would say maybe go out there and see if there is anything that you would like yeah and and i will say on that point uh someone out there who needs a dissertation idea needs to do sort of a, some sort of spatial analysis of uh, E3, the big gaming conference, because I was there this this most current uh, iteration of the conference. And those indie games that you're talking about that are more inclusive and might be uh, trying to market themselves to a further market than just straight white guys were sort of in these corners of the... Uh, conference hall right and sort of away from the main stage so that that would be an interesting analysis oh, that's well. it. so like literally we have the center on the margins exactly that's really exactly interesting. <laughs> um but i have taken up enough of your time today i encourage all of you to check out uh dr condis's book gaming masculinity trolls fake geeks and the gendered battle for online culture professor thank you so much for joining thank us you i had a blast
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.